We can turn over to uh, Jeremiah this morning. We're finishing off this little series we had. And uh, yesterday I had a, a great concern. My daughter texted me uh, from Hawaii saying they just had an alert of a ballistic missile on their way to Hawaii. And she was trying to call me. And um, I would pick up, but I wouldn't hear anything. And then I was frantically trying to call her back. And I didn't... Uh, wasn't able to connect with her for probably about 60 seconds. And so I thought, well, if they all went, they all went with the Lord together, I guess. That's a good thing. How am I going to tell her mom? You know, this is what I'm thinking. And then finally she picked up the phone and let us know that she didn't know if it was real or not. It's still, they didn't know for about 30 minutes. But, um, you know, it just goes to show that this life that we live is uncertain, isn't it? We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know uh, what the end of the day may bring. And so we've been in this little series talking about our future, um, shaping the future. And um, a lot of times people think that, well, we're just unwilling participants in God's master plan. He's a sovereign God, which is true. But somehow we end up being just, um, you know, pawns on on a chessboard. And that's not really what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that God is sovereign. He truly is. He's all-powerful. He knows the beginning from the end, everything in between. Um, But the Bible also tells us that we can do things in our own lives that can potentially change our future. And um, we've been looking at this little series here, um, Shaping the Future, and I just want to read for us the text out of Matt, or Jeremiah chapter 18, the first 11 verses there. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as with this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Verse 9, and if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will rebuild or that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore... Say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. It's one thing if someone says, You know what? I'm not going to forget this. I'm going to get you one day. We probably all dealt with people like that. Can you imagine God saying that to us? I mean, I don't know about you, but I would be repenting pretty quick if that were the case. In the first week, 
we looked at this message. We, we had a little message called, It's Not Over Till It's Over. And we understood that for a variety of reasons. First of all, the potter is at his wheel. God is sovereignly in control of these things. Secondly, the potter can transform a mistake into a masterpiece. Aren't you thankful for that? And then thirdly, God will shape your future if you're willing to be the clay. And so we've been looking at these, these messages. And uh, last week, we basically said you have to finish. You have to... Um, finish the game. You have to continue. You have to persevere. And we talked a little bit about that. And we looked at three principles that will help us finish as believers. First of all, we looked at it's never too late to turn things around. He says that in verses 7 and 8. If at any time, it doesn't matter what's gone under the bridge, how much water's gone under the bridge, how much you've messed up your life, how far along you are in your life, how old you may be, how close to the gates of heaven you are, it doesn't matter. It's never too late to turn things around. You know, I often think of that thief that hung on the cross next to Christ and how those two thieves, both of them, were saying disparaging things about our Lord at the beginning of that little session on the cross. But the one had his heart changed. And he simply cried out, Lord, remember me today. That's all he said. And what did the Lord promise him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's never too late. We don't understand that. We hear of these, you know, electric chair uh, kind of revivals, you know, guys that are going to get the death penalty and, oh, they come to Christ. Oh, yeah, they're just doing it for, for um, you know, reasons unknown to us for to get more attention or something. They're just sick and they deserve death. Well, they may deserve death because they've taken a life. But on the other hand, it's never too late for God to touch a human heart. And if we believe that, that should motivate what? It should motivate our evangelism. It should motivate our ministries here at the church because we want to reach out and we want to see those lives turned around. But secondly, which is not all that good news, Last week we said it's never too late to mess things up. (laughs) It's never too late. Don't sit here all pious and thinking, oh, yeah, I've been a Christian for 50 years, you know. Uh, It doesn't matter. You could do one wrong thing that could discredit your Christianity, your life, your testimony in the eyes of the people that you've witnessed to for years. And see, and that's why it's so crucial that as believers, we're careful and we're going to jump back into Romans next week and we're going to start to learn a little bit about that very subject, how we relate to one another as the body of Christ because people are watching. And so it's never too late to mess things up. And then the third thing we looked at just in review, it's never too late to take responsibility for your life. You know, that's really what it boils down to, right? Ownership. There's nothing wrong with messing up now and then, but just own it. Don't blame it on your parents. Don't blame it on your childhood. Just own it. You know, so many times you hear this out of the mouths of people who are actively involved in some kind of sin. Well, you don't understand, you know, the way I was raised or this or that. Now, I get it. That, that has implications, But if you're truly in Christ, if you're truly a believer, what does the Bible say? Behold, 
All things have become new. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything is new. And so we have to stop ourselves and say, you know what? I'm going to stop making excuses. It doesn't give me the right to act the way I do. And we've all done that on occasion. And so today we're wrapping up this this series, and we want to look at the message. There's still time on the clock. You know, this is a, a series about our future and uh, we've been talking about perseverance up to this point. And it's both encouraging to our hearts, but it's also kind of a, a warning as well. It's encouragement because our life is moving. If our life is moving in the wrong direction, there's always time to what? Change it. You can turn that around with the Lord's help. Um, but it's also a warning because... You never have the luxury of thinking, oh, I've arrived. As a Christian, I don't have anywhere else to go. I have arrived at the spiritual plateau of oneness with God. And sin doesn't tempt me. Nothing bothers me. I'm just the image of Christ here on earth. That's a scary thing to think. Because the Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible teaches... Just like the the game of baseball we talked about last week, that you have to play to the final out. You don't have the luxury of of relaxing, even though you may be 10 runs ahead in the ninth inning. You can't just lay down and say, oh, well, they're never going to come back. Now, you can do that in other sports because they're playing against the clock. But in baseball, it's not that way. And that's how life is. Life, you have to play it to the very end. We're in a battle That will never cease. It will never end this side of heaven. It's a war. It's not going to be over anytime soon. Pending the Lord's return. It's kind of like you're running a race with no finish line this side of the grave. The grave is the finish line. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 to 27... And this is kind of written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written almost right at the halftime in his ministry. It's right at the halftime between his, his conversion and his execution. And in talking about his ministry, he said this in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners, all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Our modern day sports teams for children need to learn this. You know, everybody doesn't always get a trophy. Not everybody's a winner. Some people are losers. Some people don't have the skills that other people do. And by granting everybody on the team a winner, even though they lost, it's not helpful. Well, what about their self-esteem? You're not helping their self-esteem by patting them on the head when they had a horrible game and saying, oh, you did wonderful. That's that's not helping their self-esteem. And so we have to rethink this. And he goes on, he says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it. Why? To get a crown. What's the motivation? To get a crown that will not last. It's not eternal. It's just something temporary. But he says, on the other hand, as Christians, we do it to get a crown that will what? 
last forever, for all eternity. Therefore, based on those facts, Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Remember, I saw a fight one time. And this guy had like skills of martial arts. And the other guy was just a boxer. And the guy with martial arts came out into the ring and he's doing all this fancy stuff. He's running around. And the other guy's just like this, just following him around. And finally he just went, boom! And the guy with martial arts, he was out! I mean, it looked real good. But what's he doing? He's beating the air. The other guy was just waiting for that prime time just to nail him right in the head. And he just went down like a ton of bricks. Paul says, don't do that. He says, I do not fight like a man beating the air. I have a purpose. No, I beat my body. Look at that. I beat my body. I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You know, you can be doing wonderful works of ministry and yet yourself be disqualified. Isn't that kind of haunting? That's kind of scary. And Paul says, don't, don't allow your flesh to allow you that opportunity to be disqualified. One of the shepherds conference, one time somebody asked, a, I think a question to John MacArthur, and I thought it was kind of a weird question. They, they asked him something about how he keeps himself disciplined in life. And I thought, okay, he's going to come out with some profound thing. And you know what he said? He said, you know what? I pass on dessert. (laughs) What? I take a pass on dessert. Not that I don't want it. I do. But it's just my way of telling my body that, you know what? I'm in charge of this. You're not. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that's a good, pretty good thing. Just, Just a little reminder See, Paul was perhaps the greatest Christian. I mean, God used him in an incredible way. Yet he understood that while his ministry was expanding, I mean, he was in a growth spurt that was just incredible. I mean, his influence was far-reaching. He still understood, you know what? I'm nobody. I still have potential to wash out. I still have a potential to fail, to falter, to not finish the race. And you know what? It was only at the end of his life as he awaited in a Roman dungeon in the final paragraphs that he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. He had the confidence to say, I have fought the what? The good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now, only now, is there in store for me a crown of righteousness. See, that's what we're shooting for. We're waiting for that time when this life is over and we can say, you know what, Lord, I did the best I can. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Welcome me into your presence. Paul would tell us today, play till the very end. Don't give up because no lead is ever safe. Be careful what you do. He would also say, play to the very end because 
no loss is ever certain. (laughs) You're not guaranteed a win. You're not guaranteed a loss. No matter what your past looks like, God can redesign your future. I heard a celebrity once say, I've been... I've always been a big believer that it's never too late to reinvent yourself or to pick up the pieces and start over when life has thrown you a curveball. It's never too late. See, this is that message that we find in Jeremiah chapter 18. If you're still breathing, guess what? There's hope. There's still time to turn things around. George Eliot, the British author, said it this way. It's never too late to become what you might have been. See, we are all clay on the potter's wheel, are we not? And it's, it's just like the clay here we see in Jeremiah chapter 18. Just like in Jeremiah's story, there are always ways in which our lives have become marred. They've become, become scarred. They have things in them that don't turn out the way we necessarily planned or even maybe God planned. We made decisions that lay, it led, may have led to disaster. We've done things maybe on occasion where it caused our life to go into a tailspin. And we don't know if we're going to be able to pull it out. In spite of that, it's never too late. The potter is still sitting at the wheel. He can still take our, our mistakes and the Bible says shape them into something, as we read last week, something beautiful, something good for his glory. See, we're like that clay that's sitting on that potter's wheel. And your life is being shaped by the hands of the potter. But there's a twist to it. The twist is simply this. You have the say in how shapeable you will be. There are things that you can do that will determine the shape of things to come in your life. Very basic things. I remember watching a potter in this presentation one time and out of the crowd, he called probably a teenage boy up and uh, he had this lump of clay sitting there on the potter's wheel and he said, hey, do you ever play with Play-Doh when you were a kid? Oh yeah. And he said, you want to give it a try? Sure. And he went to sit down and he goes, oh, wait a minute, he goes, you need to put an apron on. And so he got them all geared up and he sat down to this thing, pushed the foot lever and this thing started to spin around. And this teenage boy sat there with this fresh, wet lump of clay and proceeded just to make an, a tremendous mess. I mean, clay was flying everywhere. I mean, it was, he was a mess. And everybody was laughing, you know, and he's trying to keep the thing going. He's pushing it. It's going too fast. And it's, it was just crazy. And finally, the potter came up behind this, this young man. And he said, let me give you a hand. He just kind of came up close behind him. And he put his hands over his hands around this molding clay. And, and he said, now slow the wheel down a little bit. And he started talking to him. And you could see, wow, this kid's actually starting to make something. <laughs> But the only reason he was able to do that is because the potter was there encouraging him, guiding his fingers. And you know what? It turned into this, it wasn't incredible, but it was a a pretty nice vase they made together. And see, that's how life is. God is there right 
with us along the way. He didn't just check out. He doesn't say, okay, you're on your own. Just spin around there on that that clay, that potter's wheel. Together, God will mold us as as a glob of clay into a piece of art when we cooperate with him. There's a sense in which we participate in that molding process, right? It's the sanctifying process. We get saved. God's begin to work on us. What do we call it? We call it sanctification. What's he doing? He's making us more into the image of his son each and every day. And sometimes those hands apply pressure in places of our life that we do not like. It doesn't feel comfortable to have somebody pushing you and molding you and shaping you into something that he knows what's best. That's that's never a comfortable thing to be in. But it's a lot more uncomfortable if you fight against it. We had the opportunity, I can't remember where it was, but my wife wanted me to get a... uh, like a, a neck and back massage. And, and we did this massage together kind of a thing. And I remember at first, cause I don't like people touching me. I just, you know, so I just kind of did it to be nice. And I remember just, you know, I think it was in Thailand when there's somewhere. And I remember laying there on this, on this, on this, uh, or Dubai or wherever it was on this table. I mean, she was with me just so you know, I mean, it's not something weird going on here, but I was laying there on this table and I remember this started, you know, working my shoulders and, and, and I just remember in their accent, you know, you're tight, you're very tight, you know, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and the harder she pushed, the more I, she goes, you need to relax. This is not going to be easy if you just keep on tensing up. See, that's how it is when we, the Lord wants to mold us and shape us. You know, we have to kind of realize, you know what? This potter or this masseuse or whoever's molding us, shaping us, they know what they're doing. They're not just trying to hurt us. They're trying to make us feel better. And so we need to cooperate with that. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which we participate in that process of molding. We're not helpless victims subject to the whim of circumstance. We're not a, a mere cog in the grand design of, of God somehow. We actually participate. And today I want to talk about what we can do to take part in the shaping of our future. Continuing until the end here, till the time is out. First of all, one of the attitudes or one of the principles that we need in our life to allow us to be pliable is to be what? Teachable. We need to be teachable. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. Jeremiah had to make a decision. In verse 3, he says he made the right decision. He says, So I went down to the potter's house. Now, there's a lot of verses. I wrote some there in your outline, I think. But I just want to go over these quickly because it's, it shows us the importance of being teachable. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5 says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. 
Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Or 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the pride, proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at a proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because why? He cares for you. See, part of the resistance to being teachable is what? Pride. You're not going to teach me anything. Who do you think you are? I remember my nephew and I one time, Blake, the one that's the admiral in the Navy now, we used to go rock climbing together up at Castle Rock together. He lived in Monterey, so he'd drive up from there and I'd drive from here and we'd meet there. And we go rock climbing, and there's, a, there's a, a route over there on the rock, and it's called Farewell to Arms. And it's named after some poetry or something, but we didn't know it at the time. We just thought every time we tried to climb this thing, I mean, our arms were just dead. We just could never make it. And we really didn't know what we were doing. I had a rope and some carabiners and thought we were rock climbers. You know, we had no clue. And so one day we were over there, and we were trying to do this, and we finally renamed this route and we said, you know what? It's not called farewell to arms. It's called farewell to flesh. Because by the time we came home, we were bloody. We just, it was just a mess because we were trying to get up this rock. And I remember one time we were there and we had tried two or three times. And, and my nephew was kind of on the, on the rope there. And he's going up. And there's this little kind of wimpy looking guy with a little sack lunch sitting on the rock behind us. We didn't even know he was there until he said something. And I don't know how long he'd been sitting there. And finally he goes, hey, you know, if, if you reach over to your right, and my nephew's hanging on the rock, you know, and he's built like a rock himself. And he looks over, he's like, what? What? You know, and so he gets down, he goes, what are you saying? He goes, no, I was just saying, if you reach over to your right in that handhold, then the other one comes rather easy. And my nephew looks at I. We both had the same idea. Like, oh, yeah, like this guy knows. You know, he looks like somebody just cl- climbed out of a, 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 you know, I don't know. Just, just a real geeky looking, skinny looking little wiry guy in glasses. And I thought, this guy, is, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so we said, oh, okay, great. Yeah, right. He goes, no, I'm really serious. And he kind of was persistent with it. So finally my nephew goes, well, maybe you'd like to show us. Yeah, yeah, why don't you show us? Okay. And so this guy comes down. He didn't have rock climbing, he had sneakers on. He didn't tie on the rope, nothing. He walks up to this crack. And it's like he disappeared inside and he pops out at the top. We don't know what happened. It was like we were both just like, whoa, what did he just do? I mean, clearly he had the experience to back up the claims that he was making. But you know what? We weren't at the time, teachable. But we were after he showed us he could do it. Well, wait a minute. Now, what were you saying before, you know? And I think he told us a couple things. You know, I got to get back to work. I got to go. It's like, wait. But not being teachable, being prideful, hinders your teachability. Um, Proverbs 13, 18 says, "Poverty, poverty and disgrace came to him who ignores instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. Always be open to instruction. Always be open to reproof. Uh, Proverbs 12, 1. I love this verse. I'll tell you why in a second. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. 
but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's the ESV, I think. And the reason I love that is because the word stupid's in there. Because when our grandkids were younger, and we'd go visit them. Grandpa would take them out to McDonald's, and we'd be sitting there talking or whatever. And, and I'd say something like, you know, hey, you know, Mason, cut it out. That's stupid. Stop doing that. And they all look at me. You said the S word. I'm like, what? And, and, you know, we get back to the house. Mommy, grandpa said the S word. It's like, I didn't, I thought it was the other word, right? I'm like, I, I, I didn't say that. What are you talking about? Oh, no, you did. You did. You said the S word. And she goes, well, the S word in our house is stupid. I'm like, why? Well, it's just not very nice to say that. And so it was kind of a, a kind of a, a learning process for me. Then I discovered this verse. So now I'm like, hey, right here, you know, the Bible says it. I can say it with love, of course. <clears throat> Proverbs 9, 9 says, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. That idea that you're never done gaining wisdom. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning, it says in Proverbs 9, 9. Or 2 Timothy 3, 16, we all know this verse. All scriptures breathed out by God profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped in your Christian life? Do you want to be ready for every good work that God has for you to do? Well, then you need to be teachable. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Then you then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, what? Entrust or teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, teaching is part of our ministry. We don't just come here. I, I read an article this past week. Uh, I think it was online. Uh, maybe Doug Bissett. I think he sent it to me. But it, it said, you know, uh, 10 things that you need to change in your church. You know, and, and, and one of them had the ideas, don't preach a sermon. I was like, what? You know, because he, he said, oh, you really love number 10. And it was kind of like, well, you know, you can't teach people today. You know, that's boring. You got to have a discussion. So rather than have a time of where somebody gets up and actually expounds the scripture, you know, maybe put tables together and you can have coffee and you can talk about things. I thought, wow, that is so foreign to what the word of God tells us to do. But unfortunately, that's where a lot of churches are going today because they believe the lie that says, wow, you know, people can't sit for more than 10 minutes without, you know, going crazy anymore. Um, so, you know, you can't get up there and, and preach for 30 or 40 or 50, 60 minutes, whatever it might be. Um, see, in the same way, we need to be willing to go to the place where the word of God can be heard. Now, obviously, we're here on Sunday morning. Hopefully, we're hearing the word of God. Um, we want to preach and teach the Bible here. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter whether it's here, whether it's on a Wednesday night, whether it's on a Tuesday women's Bible study or a men's breakfast or children's church or even in the nursery. We want people to be exposed to the word of God. Why? Because that's the source of truth. That's the only source of truth we have. And so we hold it very dearly. But there's things that we can do other than just Sunday morning. We offer Bible studies, men's studies, women's studies, discipleship conferences, all kinds of things. And there's a potter's house where you will most likely hear the word of God. 
And it's not so much a geographical place. I would say it's more an attitude, an attitude place. It's a place where you arrive according to the condition of your heart. The important thing is not that you just show up for church or that somehow you just sit through a lengthy sermon. The important thing is that you come with a heart that's what? That's ready to hear the word of God. That's ready. Uh, A lot of things I've learned over the years, one of them is this. God speaks to me, not audibly through his word, through others, but God speaks to me when I'm listening. When I'm listening. When I'm willing to listen. It doesn't matter who the preacher is. It doesn't matter how good the sermon is. If I will simply just condition my heart to listen, then God will encourage me with his word. And that has to happen every day of the week in our lives. We can't just come here on a Sunday morning thinking somehow the, 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 the effort of someone who gets up here behind a pulpit for 45, 60 minutes is going to equip you for the entire week. You're, you're, you're mistaken if that's what you're believing. Every day of the week, it's essential that we go to a place, the potter's house, where we can hear the word of God. It may be an iPod. It may be on the radio. It may be in your car as you're driving somewhere. It may be in your devotions in the morning. But it's essential that you do that, that you spend time alone with God each and every day. That's one habit that's a good habit and has the power to change your life in ways that others don't. But you have to be teachable. See, if you're not teachable, if you think that somehow you've arrived and you don't need anybody to teach you anything about the Bible, then you know what? You're not going to be open to going anywhere. I've talked to Christians who don't even go to church anymore. I just watch Charles Stanley, or I just watch MacArthur on NRB, or I just do this, uh, you know, church that's full of sinners and hypocrites. And Oh, and you're above that. Well, why don't you come and straighten this out? You know, I mean, the idea that you can get spiritually fed through someone talking to you on a television set with no accountability, the ability to turn them down, turn them up, to do other things while they're talking is is just not rational. And so we need to set time aside, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's Wednesday night, where we're as a church coming together as the body of Christ and we're being willing to be taught the word of God. Um, One thing that you'll discover when you have a teachable spirit, you'll realize that, you know what? God is speaking to you all the time. All the time, not just Sunday morning. Not even when you just read the Bible. I mean, I've been driving on 280 and looked out and seen a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise or just a a, a deer running through a field and think, wow, what a great God we have. It reminds me of who God is and how he's provided for us. There's an old saying that says this, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And this is especially true, I think, in the Christian life. To make the most out of your future, you have to be teachable. Look for those God opportunities, those times where God is allowing you. 
You notice there in Jeremiah, it says the word that came to Jeremiah, uh, came from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. It's a privilege, a privilege to gather together week after week as the body of Christ, get to know each other better, get to know God better. That's what it's all about. But there's a lot of people who are foolish and say, you know what, I know everything I need to know about this particular subject. Usually they're not as arrogant to say, I know everything there is to know. That would just be pure arrogance. Wouldn't it? Oh, I know everything there is to need, I, I, you know, there is, ever is to need to know. No, they say, I know everything that I need to know about the particular subject. And that's unfortunate. Because it's just revealing their unteachableness. Um, because once you get off that, that road of continual growth, of continually being taught, you get on the road of eventual failure. So my encouragement to you this morning is to stay teachable. Listen to what God is speaking to your heart through his word, through studies you go to, through people you fellowship with. The second thing is you need to be adaptable. Not only teachable, but adaptable. Kind of makes sense. Look at verse 4. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Do you ever notice in life that life is made up of times and seasons? It's just the way it is. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. We need to remind ourselves of that. And during those changes in times and seasons, the Bible indicates that we need to be flexible. We can't be stiff. We can't be unpliable. We can't be brittle. Philippians, Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, Listen to what he says. Now, remember, this is Paul. This is, I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. Just incredible. Man of God. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to what? To be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every, in every circumstance. I have learned, listen, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need Why? Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was flexible. Paul was adaptable. He didn't put lines in the sand. Oh, you want me to come and speak at your church? Well, here's what you need. (laughs) I need a bottle of Perrier and I need at least, you know, this. There's people out there like this. Trust me. And I have to stay here and I have to fly first class. And I, what are they? They're not adaptable. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 through 13, Paul says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles at last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Verse 10, he says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in, di- in, in, in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. 
And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Wow. Talk about not having a haughty view of yourself, but being flexible. Or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, and the laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And then look at what he says in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. You have to be flexible in the hands of God. Or James chapter 4, a good reminder for us. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, I'll go into such and such a city, such and such a time, spend a year there, trade, and I'm going to make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And we, uh, and, and do this or that. You know, we have to be adaptable. We have to be flexible. When you watch a potter working on a lump of clay, you notice how the clay doesn't stay the same. It starts off just this blob, but as he forms it and he fashions it, it's constantly changing. The texture of it, the surface of it changes. And finally, it becomes this, this vase or this piece of art, the pot, cup, whatever bowl he's making, whatever it is. And it all happens because that clay is what? It's moldable. It's changeable. It's shapeable. It's pliable. It's adaptable. Sometimes... We're not adaptable when it comes to our own faults, if you think about it. I remember when we first got married, went to some counseling things and had some little issues going on. And I remember telling the counselor, this is just the way I am. Wrong. (laughs) I was bad. I've always been this way. Bad. You know, this is who she married. This is who, who I am. She's just going to have to get used to it. How dare you expect me to change? I remember when I was working at Michael's as an assistant manager of a store back in the 80s, 90s. I worked with a bunch of high school kids at night and closed the store for the, the manager. And we had this older lady who got hired on and she could only work nights. So she was working with all these kids. It just wasn't a good fit. I mean, it was like oil and water. It just was bad. You know, she was very rigid, very just, you know, and I remember talking to her like, look, these, these are just kids, you know, they're 16, 17, 18 years old. There's part-time job. You know, they're not going to have the commitment level that we do. So we need to kind of make do with what we have. And I, I, you know, I was a youth pastor, so I got along great with these kids. I mean, I, I pulled some incredible things at that store that, I mean, one night as we were closing the store, before you close the store, like 10 minutes, you, know, you had to go on the intercom. And you'd have to say, you know, uh, Michael's store will be closing in 10 minutes. Please gather your belongings and head to the thing. Cash register will be closing. And you'd do it five minutes. Well, one time I asked one of the kids, I go, is there anybody in the store? Oh, I think everybody's gone. I said, all right. Why? I go, just listen. So I go back. I grab the microphone. I go, 
Hi, this is the uh, manager. Uh, Michael's store will be closing in 10 minutes. After that, wild dogs and gas will be <laughs> released. There is a little lady back in aisle five that nobody knew about. Oh. <laughs> the kids thought it was hilarious, you know, till we saw the lady. Then I'm like, oh, I'm toast. But this lady that they hired was just not flexible. And I remember her telling me, this is just the way I am. You know, what I, what I think, it just comes out of my mouth. I'm very upfront. And she was kind of angry, you know. And I said, well, you know what? That's not good for customer service. So either you're going to change or you're not going to have a job. And I was nice. I was very patient with her. But eventually she ended up quitting. You know, some people use their faults as... That excuse, you know, I'm just this way. They're not pliable. They're not willing to change at all. And we need to be reminded, you know what? We can't do that with God. You can't do that in your own life and be successful. You can't do that with your health. You can't do that with your finances. Well, this is the way I am, and I'm, this is the way it's going to be, period. If you're unwilling to change... Everything good in life is what? It's going to pass you right by. In churches, you often hear this. The famous seven last words of the church are, we never did it that way before. Right? I mean, it may be true that They never did it that way before, but you know what? If they refuse to change, it's probably going to be their last words. Because that unflexibility, that unwillingness to adapt as time goes on. Now, we're not talking about changing the doctrine of Christ. We're talking more about changing methods, changing ministry. We're going through that right now with our missions. You know, for years, this church would raise up missionaries that come up within the church and we'd send them out and, you know, we'd support them. Well, now we're going, well, I don't know if that's the best way to do it. I mean, if someone does want to be a, become a missionary, that's great. But what a better way to go over to these countries and get people who are already doing ministry and who have been vetted and we can invest in them and they can continue their ministry. I mean, that, that would be great. They speak the language. They do everything. We don't have to go through language school. That's, that's wonderful. So we're changing the way we do things sometimes. And some churches just resist change altogether, even while their numbers are shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And we need to be willing to adapt. We need to be willing to change. Um, And I'm glad to be part of a church that we could probably safely say was a long time ago dying. Didn't know what the future may hold. We're considering closing up shop. And it was due to three or four elders that got together and said, you know what, we're going to give this one last try. We think God doesn't want us to just close up shop and give everything to the missionaries, but we think that God needs a place on the peninsula here in Redwood City that's willing to stand upon the word of God and let God be a light into this community. So as a result of that, we need to be a little pliable. We need to think about where we're going and what we're doing. 
See, when the potter is working at the wheel, beloved, you ever notice what he does when that potter is doing it? What's he do? He takes water, right? He's constantly pouring water on the clay over his hands. And he does that to keep it soft, to keep it pliable. And if you just do a simple little topical Bible study on what water symbolizes in the Bible, you'll see it symbolizes purification from sin. It symbolizes things like the presence of God. It even symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And if you think about it, just those three things are very much needed if one's heart is going to remain pliable in the hands of God. We should be asking God constantly to cleanse us, to wash away all impurity, every sin, every stain, even self-destructive tendencies that we have. And we need to learn to live in the the presence of God each and every day. Walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Be filled in the Spirit each and every day. That's a life that will be adaptable, that will be pliable in God's hands. And the last thing here this morning is you need to be accountable. You need to be accountable. Teachable, adaptable, accountable. At this point in Jeremiah, God was very uh, unhappy, you might say, with the direction of the nation of Judah. And through this prophet Jeremiah, he told them that nations that do evil will be destroyed. Do you ever notice in God's word as God uh, kind of molds us and shapes us and gives us his word to read that there's not a lot of gray areas? You know, I mean, God simply says, if you do this, this is going to be the outcome. If you do that, this is going to be the outcome. It's not rocket science. And so he did that with Judah. But Judah continued to rebel against God, and so God sent them this message. Look at verse 11. He says, Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. But there's still hope if you return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. You know, accountability. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You're not going to be accountable to the person sitting next to you. You're going to be accountable to God one day. The Bible says that every knee, everyone will appear before the Lord Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The problem is if you wait till that point to do it, it's too late. Or in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 to 5 Paul writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a gentle spirit, with a gentle spirit. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his uh, reason to boast will be In himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You know, so many times we think of accountability. We think of, you know, groups of two or three getting together. And, okay, did you think any bad thoughts this week? No. You know, I mean, that's great if that works for you. It doesn't work for me. I mean, what works for me is, you know what? There's a holy God in heaven watching every little single thing I do. And not just my actions, but my thoughts and my motives and my word and what's in my heart that nobody else sees. That's what worries me. Now, accountability is fine amongst brothers, and we're encouraged to that. 
But don't let it end there. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. It's hard to do that if you just are here on a Sunday morning as the body of Christ. It's just hard to do that if you're not around other people. Proverbs 27 to 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why we have a men's ministry. That's why I encourage people to come out to men of the word, come out to the men's breakfast. Saturday, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 to 12, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Very important verses. Or even here in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, God has called everyone to accountability. And first and foremost, we're accountable to God. He wasn't just telling these leaders to straighten up. He was telling every citizen of Judah, you know what, you need to turn from your evil ways. So many times, I think in, in our, our nation, we, we blame our, our nation's problems on the leaders as if the leaders have anything to do with it. It really doesn't work that way. It's each individual that makes up the nation. Each individual that makes up the church. That's why it's, we're giving illustrations. You know what? If there's just... A little leaven. We've got a problem. But God's message through Jeremiah was clear. I'm not just speaking to the king. I'm not just t- speaking to the political movers and shakers. I'm speaking to everyone. And that's what we need to be reminded. As a church. As a nation. Remember this. You can only decide what you are going to do. You can only decide what you are going to do. It doesn't matter if it's in the church. It doesn't matter if it's in a marriage. It doesn't matter if it's at your job. If you just remember that, you can only decide what you are going to do. And as a believer before God who holds you accountable, you say, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. I don't care if it doesn't draw a crowd. I don't care if the crowd come against me. I don't care if my spouse doesn't understand. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to do the right thing. I can only be accountable for my actions. And you can only be accountable for yours. See, if you want to make the most of your future, beloved, you have to understand you have to take responsibility for your part, for your actions, and for your attitudes. Those who make the most of their future are those who say, if it is to be, it is up to me. I will not stand on the sidelines and complain. I'll get in the game and do 
what I can do. Making your future what it can be comes down to a decision to get into the presence of God each and every day, to listen to his word each and every day, to seek his direction each and every day, to surrender to the Holy Spirit each and every moment. Refresh yourself in the God's presence each and every day. Step up to the plate of responsibility and do what is right in the eyes of God each and every day. The words of Jeremiah 18 can be interpreted as an encouragement or as a warning, as a promise or as a threat. What it really tells us is what you do matters. And you'll never get to the point where it doesn't. I pray that this little series has encouraged our hearts to really look to the future that God has for us, for our church, for our families, for our marriages, and say, you know what? We, we want to do the right thing. We don't want to just coast. We want to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear, to understand, and to apply the word of God. And we trust him that he will use us to reach out to a lost and dying community as he makes these changes in us that we can see change in others as well. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would be willing to not quit. That we would be willing to <clears throat> do the hard work of ministry and of study and of of getting along with each other, all these things that you've called us to do as the body of Christ, that we would continue to do it until the end. That in the end, we could say, we want to hear that, those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we, we pray that we would not grow complacent, but we would trust you to use us in a way that you've never used us before, that we would see many come to Christ in 2018 because of how we desire to be obedient to you, that we would see lives changed as we reach out to this lost and dying community with the gospel of Christ, that we would live it first, speak it into their lives, and Lord, that we would step back and for your glory, see you do the work of salvation and sanctification in many. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, who maybe there's somebody here that hasn't yet cried out to God and said, Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. It's kind of obvious. I need a remedy for my sin. The Bible says that Jesus died for my sins on Calvary. And not only that, but he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. That's the kind of God I want to get to know, a kind of God that can forgive my sin, to put me on the the road to wholeness, to put me on the road to holiness, and to really use me in a way that I would never even dreamed of, that could lift this burden of sin off my shoulders. Lord, I, I want to trust in that kind of God. I pray that you would cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me my need for a savior this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.